Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Henceforth, Blacks should speak to themselves and for themselves. No other can speak for us. Courtney, those are the words of Reverend Samuel Cornish, publisher of Freedom's Journal, founded in 1827. This was the first Black-owned and operated newspaper published in the U.S. Cornish took up the pen to battle systemic racism through the print medium. And what sparked Cornish and others to found this newspaper in Carol? Well, here's a little more history about that paper. As I mentioned, it all began in 1827 when a group of prominent free Black citizens met at Boston Cromwell's home in New York City to discuss how to communicate their views on the various social, political, and economic issues. Now, Black people have always relied on the church as well as social and fraternal organizations to share ideas and get information out of in the community, but no newspapers early on told their stories. In fact, white-owned established press routinely excoriated Blacks, questioned their integrity and morality, and they usually get this, they wouldn't even run Black obituaries in their papers. So during the meeting, Reverend Samuel Cornish and John B. Russworm became the paper's editors, opening the door so that by the Civil War, 40 Black newspapers were being published. Wow. And that was just the beginning in Carol during the 1920s and 30s, when major white papers virtually ignored black America. That was the glory days of the black press. That's when it began. You bet. You bet. Thank goodness the uh, Cornish and his group started the ball rolling because as blacks migrated from the fields to urban centers, Virtually every large city soon had black newspapers. For example, there was the Chicago Defender, the Detroit Tribune, the Pittsburgh Cour uh, Courier, and the New York Amsterdam News. These were newspapers that gave the news through the lens of black eyes. Black papers reported on job opportunities, retailers that didn't discriminate. They covered charity events in uplifting society pages that showed, you know, accomplished and dignified Black people enjoying each other's company. These newspapers also reported on politics, sports, money, social issues, and everything, the, basically from the Black reader's perspective. And many entertainers saw their careers launched because of the Black press. Folks like Lena Horne, Little Richard, Paul Robeson, and many, many, many others were promoted in their early stages well before the white media took notice of them. Um, also, Editorial writers at these newspapers, they crusaded for open housing, 
quality schools, for voting rights, for fair employment, equal accommodations, all of the things and demands that later would form the uh, backbone of the civil rights agenda. Now, as a writer myself, I find it interesting to note that some of America's leading Black writers and some of my heroes, as well as activists and intellectuals, wrote for these papers, including Richard Wright, Gwendolyn Brooks, Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Dubois, Zoranir Hurston, Marcus Garvey, and Elijah Muhammad. That's right. Uh, Courtney, they wrote for these newspapers regularly and their writing helped Black publishers grow rich and powerful. For example, Robert S. Abbott, who started the Chicago Defender, he started that with only $13.75. He went on to become one of America's first Black millionaires. And by 1929, the Defender's circulation was 230000 a week. But get this, the Pittsburgh Courier was actually the biggest publisher, topping 300,000 with 15 editions uh, put out across the country. Now, in addition to uh, being powerful in terms of money and publication reach, here's another example of how powerful the black press became. In 1932, when the Pittsburgh Courier publisher, Robert L. Van, Abbott at the Defender and others used their clout to steer Black voters en masse to the Democratic Party, ultimately breaking the ties to the Republican Party. They helped to get Franklin D. Roosevelt president, uh, uh, elected president because they pushed his presidency, they pushed his candidacy. But Courtney, I think you have a story about a journalist whose powerful voice also resonates with us today. You're right. And today's story is about someone who I would personally call the queen of investigative journalism. And like the kids say today, and some of us millennials, if you don't agree, fight me. You can just meet me in the parking lot and fight me. (laughs) And I mean, she has her own Barbie doll. I mean, that is the, one of the pinnacles of, for a female, I like, she has her own Barbie doll, people. So there you one. go. I own it. <laughs> and Anne Carroll owns it. So there you have it. And it's none other than Ida B. Wells. She's a journalist, an educator, and an activist against lynching and champion for anti-lynching. And as many of you know, it has taken a very long time for America to recognize this fight um, against lynching. And it's been a while. We have a law passed, but she started this fight way, way long time ago. But let's start at the beginning. Now, Ida B. Wells was born enslaved in Holly Springs, Mississippi in 1862. She was the oldest daughter of James and Lizzie Wells. Now, during Reconstruction, her parents were very active in the Republican Party. And remember, I always have to give this disclaimer so no one gets my words twisted. This is not the Republican Party that you see acting a fool today. No way, this no is how, the- no way, no how. <laughs> This is not the same people. We don't know her. 
this is totally the old school Republican Party um, that we're talking about. Now, Mr. Wells was involved with the Freedmen's Aid Society to help start Rust College. And Rust College is a historically black liberal arts college, and it's affiliated with the United Methodist Church. And it's one of the 10 historic black colleges and universities founded before 1869 that are still that's still operating today. Now, Ida B. Wales herself attended Rust College to receive her early education, but she was forced to drop out at 16 when she lost both of her parents and one of her siblings to a yellow fever outbreak. Now, she had been convinced by a new uh, nearby school administrator that she was uh, she was 18 and she could get a job as a teacher. So that's what she did after her parents died. She left school, took care of her siblings and became a teacher. Now, in 1882, Wells moved with her sisters to Memphis, Tennessee, to live with their aunt and her brothers, and she was the oldest of eight. So her sisters moved with her aunt, and her brothers found work as carpentry apprentices, because that was her father's first trade. And um, for some time, Ida continued her education at Fisk University, another HBCU in Nashville. Now, while on a train ride from Memphis to Nashville in May of 1884, Wells reached a turning point. She had bought a first class ticket um, to sit up in a nicer part of the train, but the train crew forced her to move to the car for African-Americans. And she refused on principle. Like I bought a first class ticket. I'm going to sit in first class. But eventually she was forcibly removed from the train. And as she was being removed from the train, which is something that I may have done myself, she bit one of the crew members. Oh, Ida, Ida. And then turned around and sued the railroad. And that is exactly what I would have done. And she bite them both ways, physically and and economically. I'm going to bite them in the pockets as well. And she won a $500 settlement in a circuit court case. Now, that decision was overturned by the Tennessee Supreme Court. But get your coins, Ida. You bite that man and then you get your $500. I love it. Now, following this incident, Wells began writing about issues of race and politics in the South using the name Iola Wells. And she had a number of articles published in Black newspapers, um, like the ones that we talked about earlier in the podcast. Now, later, after you know she got her writing creds up, she became the owner of two newspapers, the Memphis Free Speech and the Head and the headlight. Now, in addition as working as a journalist and a publisher, she still worked as a teacher in in a segregated public school in Memphis. And she was a a vocal critic of the condition of segregated schools in the city. I'd love to get her thoughts on how schools are being run today, but that's neither here nor there. Um, But she did speak out about the segregated schools and how they were in bad conditions. And she was eventually fired from her job in 1891 because of her criticism. Now, but something would happen in March of 1892 to a group of Ida's friends that would help her actually find her voice and use it as a very powerful weapon against one of the deadliest creations used against African-Americans in this country. Okay, well, considering her background of biting somebody and suing the company and not backing down when uh, she didn't like the segregated schools, 
she's quite a bold and scrappy woman. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll see what fate lay ahead for her. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? See you there. Well, all right now, Courtney, it's clear Ida B. Wells isn't afraid to back down from a fight. What happened next? So when we left Ida, you know, she had just lost her job because she was, you know, criticizing segregated schools in Tennessee, especially where she lived in Memphis. And she was just finding her footing in journalism. She had the headlight and the Memphis free speech paper, um, but she was just getting her her toes wet in, in activism. But it was something that happened to one of her friends, like I said, would that would change her life in the course of her writing forever. And it was all over a game of marbles. Hmm. Now, I know that that seems kind of weird, but Hmm. I'll explain. Now, in 1889, a man by the name of Thomas Henry Moss was uh, African-American general, a gentleman who opened what was called the People's Grocery Store, which he co-owned and was located in the South Memphis neighborhood known as the Curve. Now, Ida herself had grown close with the Moss family, so close that she was the godmother to their first child, Maureen. Now, Thomas's store was thriving and it was in direct competition with the grocery store across the street, a white owned grocery store by the name of Barrett's Grocery owned by William Russell Barrett. This doesn't bode well. This does not bode well. Yes. And it it takes a twisted turn. Now, on March 2nd, 1892, a game of marbles, like I said, would change the course of Ida's life and many others forever. Now, a young boy, Amor Harris, a black boy from the neighborhood, The Curve, was playing marbles with a white boy by the name of Cornelius Hurt. Now, the two began to fight over the outcome of the game because Harris had won. Now, this was in front of People's Grocery Store, the Black-owned grocery store. And, you know, kids are going to tussle. They're going to go back and forth. They do stuff like that. Now, as the two kids began to fight, people who saw the fight said Amor was really getting the best of Cornelius. He was really shaking the marbles out of Cornelius. <laughs> it was more than a marbles game at that time. At, oh, this, yeah. at this time, it was it was a lot more than that. That's when Cornelius's dad, a grown man, jumped into the fight and started hitting a more Harris. He started hitting the other child. Now, upon seeing this, the People's Grocery Store employees, William Stewart and Calvin R. McDowell, were like, hey, hey, hey we're not going to have this. Now, if the kids are going to fight, let them fight. But you're not going to, you know, jump into this. So then they began to fight Cornelius's dad, Mr. Hurst. Now, when people saw that this white man was being accosted, more adults began to make a crowd. So then it became a racially charged mob of adults fighting other adults over two children fighting over a marbles game. Oh boy. Oh boy. Okay. (laughs) So the next day on March the 3rd, 1892, in a classic case of not minding the business that pays you, 
Mr. Barrett, the grocery owner of Barrett's Grocery across the street, he took it upon himself to call the county sheriff's deputy, go to the people's grocery store and look for William Stewart, who was involved in trying to break up that fight where Mr. Hearst was hitting Amor in the head. He, you know, he was not looking for Mr. Hearst, the white man who hit a child. He wasn't looking for the other boy's parents. He was looking for the man that jumped in. Now, Calvin McDowell was there and he greeted the deputy and Mr. Barrett and said, you know, uh, William Stewart, he's not here. You know, he's not here. You need to leave. This has been settled. You guys got to go. Now, Mr. Barrett, who, again, had nothing to do with what happened the day before, said, you know, he was upset about the fight and what happened. And made the comment as he was leaving, well, all blacks are thieves. And then he pulled out his pistol and hit Calvin McDowell on the head with the pistol, trying to pistol whip him in front of the deputy. Now, Calvin McDowell was having none of that. So he wrestled the gun away from Mr. Barrett and fired a shot that missed him. But he was arrested and subsequently released. And and let me make sure now. <laughs> McDowell is a black guy. He wrestled. McDowell with is the. He's one. Uh, Mr. McDowell, Calvin McDowell, was along with Mr. William Stewart, who was trying to stop uh, Cornelius's dad from hitting the boy that he was fighting, yeah, and true. that all turned into a mob. Mr. Barrett had nothing to do with any of this. He was just in competition with the people's grocery store, the black grocery store. Yeah, so he so we invited where, him. Yeah, yeah. We know where this is leading, I think, I think, in terms of the competitiveness <laughs> here. But go ahead. Now, on March 5th, now this was two days after, this was three days after the fight, two days after the almost shooting. On March 5th, 1892, a group of six white men, including a sheriff's deputy, took electric streetcars to the people's grocery store. And the group of white men, I guess, I don't know what they thought was going to happen, but somebody told them wrong because they were met with a barrage of bullets from the people's grocery store. (laughs) So (laughs) they weren't having it. We were we're laying for you. Now, in the melee, Cheryl uh, Shelby County Sheriff Deputy Charlie Cole was wounded, as well as civilian Bob Harold and hundreds of white. And I don't understand this process because it happened in Tulsa after that happened. Hundreds of white men were just automatically deputized immediately to put down what was perceived by local Memphis newspapers, the commercial and the appeal avalanche as an armed rebellion of black men in Memphis. Mm. Now, this has gone from a marble game to a fist fight to an almost shooting to them trying to do something and, and jump on the people at people's grocery store and them firing back. So now there's an armed rebellion because this man's trying to defend his business. Mm. Now, where was the actual business owner of people's grocery store and all this Thomas Moss? Well, he was the postman along with being, you know, the owner of the grocery store. He had nothing to do with any of this, but he was named as a co-conspirator along with, Calvin McDowell and William Stewart, and all three of them were arrested and put in jail. They okay, did not go. Get, <laughs> I want to get this right. Thomas Moss was not at the melee at all. He wasn't. All. He just owns People's Grocery Store, which is in direct competition with, with Barrett's Grocery Store, owned by a white man. 
Exactly. And, and Thomas Moss is a black man who also happens to be the postman. He's in a very lucrative position, a well-paid job in Memphis. Mm. Oh, and okay. if he were to lose his grocery store, the only grocery store available to the people in the Curve neighborhood would be Barrett's Grocery, a white owned business. OK, all righty. All right. I'm 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 starting to connect a few dots here, but keep, so keep it going. right now we have Thomas Moss arrested, Calvin McDowell arrested and William Stewart arrested. None of the white men involved, not Mr. Hearst, who struck a child. Not the six men who came with a plan to do something to people's grocery store and got the surprise of their life. None of these men have been arrested. But Mr. McDowell, Mr. Moss and Mr. Stewart are now in police custody. Now, around 2.30 a.m. on the morning of March 9th, 1892, 75 men wearing black masks mask broke in, not broke out, but broke in to the jail. And took Thomas Moss, Calvin McDowell, and William Stewart from their jail cells. Have you ever heard of someone breaking into a jail? Uh, Only (laughs) if they're up to no good. But anyway, they break in, grab these three guys, these three black guys. Okay, Mm -hmm. go ahead. And they take them to the Chesapeake and Ohio Rail Yard, one mile north of the city. They shot them and then they lynched them. Mm. Now, the Memphis Appeal Avalanche newspaper reports just before he was killed, Thomas Moss, who was completely innocent, said to the mob, tell my people, go west. There is no justice here. Wow. Wow. And of course, the white newspaper reported that. But Mm -hmm. now after the lynching of her friends, Ida wrote in her paper, the free speech and the headlines urging Blacks to leave Memphis altogether. And this is what she said. There is, therefore, only one thing left to do. Save our money and leave a town which will neither protect our lives and property nor give us a fair trial in the courts, but takes us out and murders us in cold blood when accused by white persons. Mm, Well, she was pretty brave to write something like that. Oh, she was very, very brave. Now, this event is what sparked her. She began investigating lynchings and using investigative journalist techniques that journalists use to this very day. She began to interview people associated with lynchings. And on May 21st, 1892, she published an editorial in the Free Speech newspaper refuting what she called that old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women because that was the adage back then. Now, it's not the grocery store situation. We know what that was about. But most lynchings were these phantom sexual assaults that did not happen. And she also said a little snarky remark of this. If Southern men are not careful, a conclusion might be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Now, and I do I do love a good read. And that is a good read because she's like, if this keeps happening, something's not the math is not math into Miss Ida B. Wells. Mm -hmm. So that's what she's trying to say there. Now, four days later, on May 25th, 1892, the Daily Commercial, another newspaper published a thread. Um, towards Ida B. Wells. And they said the fact that a black scoundrel, which is Ida B. Wells in this case, is allowed to live and utter such loathsome and repulsive calumnies, which is just another word for slander, 
is the volume of evidence as to the wonderful patience of Southern whites but we've had enough of it. Oh, Excuse boy. <laughs> so what are you trying like, like that's okay. The jig is now, up. The jig is the jig up. Is, you know, we've, we've been, we're, we're being patient with. Now the evening scimitar, which was another Memphis paper, got bold. Now they copied that story the same day, but they issued another, you know, they raised another threat. And it's saying patience under such circumstances is not a virtue. If the Negroes themselves do not apply the remedy without delay, it will be the duty of those whom he, and in this case, she, has attacked to lie. The wretch who utters these calumnies to stake at the intersection of Maine and Madison, brand him in the forehead with a hot iron, perform upon him a surgical operation with tailor shears. Wow. What kind of mess is like, you're like, number one, this is a lady. I don't need, you're not even respecting the fact that the lady that wrote this, but you're talking about hanging somebody and mutilating them in the newspaper. This mm. is not social media. This is not people jaw jacking on the corner. This is an actual newspaper who was threatening physical harm to a black person who was questioning why are black people being lynched illegally why is this being done to us mm, mm, wow okay but people, what happened next what now happened people next? made good on their threats now a white mob ransacked the free speech uh, newspaper office destroying the building they blew it up and its contents while mm. ida was away visiting in new york the mob uh, did find the co-owner james fleming um who was also the business manager he got so scared that he ran out of memphis and never came back and reportedly they had people watching the trains waiting for ida to return to memphis so they could get a hold to her and i mean from that threat we know what they had planned if they did get a hold to her now, creditors that they owed for the items that were still, you know, viable to sell took possession of the office and sold all the assets that were still able to sell. So she had nothing to come back to. Wow. Wow. And then, vicious, vicious. Vicious. And then a committee of white businessmen, a committee, the Klan. But mm. anyway, a committee <laughs> of white businessmen um, reportedly from something called the Cotton Exchange located Reverend Nightingale. Now, Reverend Nightingale, he's the one that sold his interest in the paper to Ida and her partner a year before. He had nothing to do with what was going on at the, the free uh, speech newspaper, but they assaulted this reverend at gunpoint and made him sign a letter retracting Ida's editorial from May 21st. He had nothing to do with the newspaper. <laughs> Wait, this guy has sold his interest in the newspaper, has nothing to do with it, but they, they hold a gun to his head and make him retract an editorial he did not even write. That he had, had did not even write. Now, as luck would have it, or as Grace would have it, Ida had accepted a job with the New York Age just around the time all this was happening back in Memphis. But this did not scare her. This did not stop her. She still began her and continued tirelessly on her anti-lynching campaign from New York. Um, and she lived with the 
newspaper owner of the New York Age. She lived in New York and then she moved a year later to Chicago, where she continued working to get anti-lynching legislation passed. Now, her most prominent works would be her pamphlet, Lynching Law in All Its Phases, that calls out how lynching was used against African-Americans in the years after the Civil War. And what would be considered the culmination of her work would be Southern Horrors, which was, it was and is an intensive work that provides a very harrowing eyewitness accounts of lynchings across the South. A lot of the stories that we tell about lynchings or the historical information we have, those terrifying stories that keep a lot of people up at night, they were in this book. She was writing these stories and collecting these stories. This was a very intensive wor uh, work. And it was groundbreaking work because she provides evidence that while Black men were lynched based off what she would call that threadbare lie about Black men raping white women, white men rarely got punished for their sexual crimes against Black women. And the Black men who were lynched for these phantom crimes were usually in consensual relationships with the women that they were accused of raping. So she basically used her writing skills, her journalistic expertise, her ability to do investigative work to point out the horrors of lynching and, again, the big old lie that Black men were trying to sexually assault women. It really was nothing more than state-sanctioned terrorism and murder. Exactly. And people sneaking with the deacon and cheating on their spouses and then getting somebody killed as mm. a result of not wanting to get in trouble. She also wrote the Red Record, which was the first documented statistical report on lynching, describing lynchings in the United States from 1863 to her present day. Now, Wells was also an active fighter for women's suffrage, particularly for Black women. Now, here's a story here about her other side of activism, which was suffrage. On January 30th, 1913, Wells founded the Alpha, Alpha Suffrage Club in Chicago. The club organized women in the city to elect candidates who would best serve the Black community. Now, as president of the club, Wells was invited to march in the 1913 suffrage parades. I'm sure we've all seen the little, you know, stiff film of the ladies walking <laughs> with their long <laughs> Hello Dolly dresses. Um, she was invited to march in that parade in Washington, D.C., along with dozens of her other club members and organizers. But white female organizers were afraid of offending Southern white suffragists. So they asked the women of color to march in the back of the parade. Oh, oh, oh go. They, they dealt with the wrong woman here. Mm -hmm. I, I they have a have feeling a Ida wasn't having it. Wrong one, right time. Because Ida, Ida was like, you know what? I'm not even going to march in a little stupid parade. I'm not even going to do all that. You know what? Ida stood on the sidelines as the parade passed by and she waited for the Chicago contingent of white women and she just jumped right on into the parade and continued <laughs> on marching. This is my group. I'm in. <laughs> now, sadly, the rest of her suffrage club uh, did stay at the back of the parade. But Ida said, not me. They're going to see me. They're going to see this blackness today. Mm. So she jumped right in. 
Now, the work done by uh, Ida B. Wells and the Alpha, Alpha Suffrage Club played a crucial role in the victory of w- women's suffrage in Illinois on June 25th, 1913, with the passage of the Illinois Equal Suffrage Act. Now, Ida B. Wells did pass away of kidney disease on March 25th, 1931 in Chicago, but she leaves behind a legacy of social and political activism. And I think we're going to talk about how something she had wanted for so long in her life actually came to fruition in the second half of the podcast. What a life, Courtney. Wells made her mark in so many, many, many ways. And her journalistic expertise, her work in suffrage, um, you know, it's no wonder that in 2020, she was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for, quote, her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African-Americans during the era of lynching. So, Even posthumously, she was given a Pulitzer Prize award for her journalistic expertise. Love it. And that's why she's the queen. And like I said, you can fight me if you don't believe me on that. (laughs) But how is Black press faring today, Aunt Carol? Well, Courtney, according to its website, today, um, the National Newspaper Publishers Association Uh, says that it's comprised of more than 200 Black newspapers in the U.S. and the Virgin Islands. And NNPA newspapers have a combined readership of 15 million. And the organization has forged ahead into the digital age with the creation of an electronic news service and the BlackPressUSA.com website that enables the Black press to provide real-time news and information to its national constituency. So it sounds like Black newspapers are thriving. Not so fast, Courtney, (laughs) not so fast. Even though these numbers appear promising, there is a big shift going on in the way Blacks get and consume news. Things have changed since Ida B. Wells' day and also that golden age of Black newspapers that you talked about earlier. According to the uh, uh, research by the Pew uh, Institute, Today, unlike in the mid 20th century that saw major national black publications, most black newspapers are small community or oriented operations. And although there are over 100 black newspapers in the United States of those that report audited circulation, only one, the St. Louis American has a circulation of over 50,000. And many of these newspapers have seen their circulation decline in recent years. And of course, this mirrors the trends that are going on in the newspaper industry overall, where circulation reached its lowest record level in uh, 2018. Well, that's quite a decline. But where did that study say um, African-Americans are getting their news now? If it's not from printed newspapers, where, pray tell, are they getting their news? Well, it's a combination of things. The Pew study says Black Americans prefer getting their news from TV. Um, Six in 10 say this is their preferred pathway to news. Uh, 25% prefer other news outlets. 9% prefer radio. And about 5% prefer print. So it looks like Black people are moving away from print media, 
But what are the alternatives besides the six o'clock and 6.30, 10 and 11 o'clock news? Well, you'll like this, my dear niece. Social media is in the spotlight these days, Courtney. For instance, these platforms have served as venues for political engagement and social activism for many years. It has grown and grown and grown, especially for Black Americans. Now, this was evident as if we'll think back to 2020 with the killing of the unarmed Black man George Floyd by the white Minneapolis police officer. That resulted in widespread protests and demonstrations all over the country. And the reason for that is that they uh, folks were reached through those social media platforms and that heinous crime was uh, shown there. Now, another Pew study shows that Black social media users have been particularly likely to say that these sites are personally important to them for getting involved with issues they care about or finding like-minded people. They're also likely to express positive views about the impact of these uh, platforms for holding powerful people accountable for their actions and giving a voice to underrepresented groups. So social media has edged out pretty much all media, including print. Well, that makes complete sense, Aunt Carol. I'm personally, you know, of aware we know of Black Twitter. We've got Black TikTok, people on Instagram, the Shade Room, places like that um, are all over uh, the Internet. They've been organizing, offering support and creating visibility online for Black people and Black issues. And we also know if it pops on Black Twitter, everybody else is going to jump on that trend as well. Well, and you're exactly right, my dear niece. A study by the Knight Foundation on the relationship between Black Twitter and other sub-communities that participants in these online communities often use um, actually circulate and raise awareness of issues before media organizations, traditional ones, or traditional journalists even take uh, interest in these issues. And even before Twitter and other well-known social media sites were established, there were the Black-centric blogs uh, known for pressuring uh, organized media uh, into covering topics that were otherwise going unnoticed. Yes, I do remember the days of Black Planet. Yes, I'm an elder millennial. (laughs) You're an elder. You're an elder. (laughs) Now, here's an interesting fact about social media, elder. Black social media users are often more likely than their counterparts from some other racial and ethnic backgrounds to engage in different types of political activities on social media. And they also believe those activities to be more effective. Well, that makes a lot of sense because, like I said, I'm a TikTok person. I follow so many people on TikTok that are talking about news and news issues. And then I may see three, four, five days later, they're talking about it on the news. So definitely social media has allowed us all to become our own Ida B. Wells and those, you know, beginning black newspapers and journalists. uh, We're doing that on social media right now. Yeah, I think you've got it right, Courtney. And although there is a decline in Black newspapers today, we still have Ida B. Wells to thank for blazing the trail in Black journalism that eventually has led to this rise in the use of social media as an alternative way of giving a voice to Black concerns. 
thank you. Thank you, Ida B. Wells, for that. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing, because we definitely put up news articles and think pieces and historical uh, people that link to what's going on today, you can find all of that and what we're doing on social media, as well as past episodes on our website, which is www.pipage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.